Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. Hey, Howie, we got a great show today. I'm going to jump off with something about the American Diabetes Association. People may think that's mundane, but hey, there were a lot of headlines out of Huge there. Huge headlines this week. Around obesity, anti-obesity yep. drugs. Then people should hang on tight because Hill Moss is coming in the interview and she knocks it out of the park. What an extraordinary individual doing amazing things. I mean, look, she's a patient survivor and she's a CEO and entrepreneur. It's, it's an awesome interview. And then people should stay on to the end because you given us a little bit of a one year after Dobbs viewpoint. Yeah, sadly. Yep. You know, it's really good. So, what, so let's hear about the, what do you think? I mean, a diabetes meeting is normally not about obesity, but why don't you tell us what we learned? Oh my gosh, you know, for people who celebrate Christmas, it was Christmas this year in San Diego because there was just so many different headlines. So let me, let me just frame this for everyone again, because we've had Anya Jasterboff, a real star. She, By the way, she leads another New England Journal of Medicine trial this week. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But again, it, it's this, this movement towards a recognition of obesity as a chronic, treatable, neurometabolic disease, a condition, not a weakness of character not simply no willpower, but that it's something for people in the right social context, receptible, you know, obesity occurs, just like hypertension occurs in that kind of context. And, and so there are these nutrient-stimulated hormone-based pharmacotherapeutics. Boy, that's a mouthful. This is talking about Ozempic and Wegovy, but now on the horizon, there's, you know, Majaro from Lilly and much more. So, Howie, at this meeting, I mean, what we heard was, New science talking about, you know, a lot of these have been injectables, talking about, hey, effective oral meds. Now, the, the first medications were sort of focusing one type of hormone pathway. Mujaro f- focuses on two, terzepatide. It, it is more effective. And then Anya was doing a, what's a phase two study, which means it's still preliminary, about almost 400 people was targeting three pathways for this disease and, and wow, knocked it out of the park. Enormous, enormous. Can you just tell us about that, the dose effect and the magnitude of what we're talking about? Yeah, sure. So, so this is uh, Eli Lilly's, and by the way, there's a lot in here, uh, Pfizer's in the game, Amgen's in the game, Behringer's in the game. I mean, almost all the major farmers now are tacking toward this area and there's a lot of innovation, but, but, the paper that Anya was on, basically, you know, phase two is like, what's the right dose? Does it work at all? Is it safe? You know, it's a, it's it's on the way towards what we call phase three definitive pivotal study, which would then lead to its approval by the FDA. And so, you know, this drug uh, they, in this in this study, about 400 people, they randomized them, but they, they're looking at different doses and trying to figure out what's what's work. It's a double blind, randomized placebo controlled trial. It's it is done really well. It goes about 48 weeks. I, actually, I was saying 400. I think when I, I think about it, it almost it was a little more than 300, 338 people. And what they found was like really marked weight reduction. So when you when you looked at the Wegovies and the Ozempic semaglutide, you got about 15 percent of weight loss. When you got the terzepatide, which was the one of the two hormones, we got about 21 percent weight loss. Now, with this, with three pathways being targeted, we got about 24% at the top top dose. But here was the thing, Howie, I don't know if you noticed this, but even at the end of the 48 weeks, it hadn't plateaued. And, and some of these people who were quite, quite had obesity at quite high levels, uh, 
they, they had almost, you know, 30% of their weight uh, was lost in the courses. Again, what I'm trying to focus on on these drugs is not the weight loss, but but the health promotion, you know, and and in that case, for these individuals, it was it was really, really remarkable because, you know, it seemed like this is also targeting, you know, can reverse diabetes. It can treat hypertension. And all of these obesity related conditions track together. And when, you know, in this study, what we're seeing is that there are really important effects, not only on weight, but on these other comorbidities. And and I think you're going to see readout on studies that are going to look at cardiovascular outcomes later this summer, which I anticipate will show really beneficial effects on overall risk. And, and look, we have so many more questions to answer. Often you say like there's more questions than answers now, but right now we have an enormous number of answers, but there's still a lot of questions. I mean, we still don't know, you know, can people safely stop these and not have to worry about regaining most of the weight back or even some of the weight back? We have some limited evidence about that, but there's a lot of questions that we still need to answer. And I think we've entered into this generation right now that's going to go on for probably well over 10 years to help us better understand the disease, how to treat it optimally, and also to help people afford and, and have access to it. Lots of questions, but, you know, highly effective medications that seem safe and likely they've already been shown in other circumstances to lower risk, the semaglutide, for example, yep. in people with diabetes. So we're holding on tight here to see what's going to happen, but that does seem to be a major change yeah. in what's available to help people. Howie, let's, let's get on to Hill. On our 35th episode on May 26th last year, I got to first introduce our listeners to Hill Moss. So it is great to have her as a guest today. She has a powerful story to tell our listeners, and I will leave it to her to tell it. But in brief, she is now the co-founder and CEO of VivorCare, a virtual survivorship clinic that supports cancer survivors post-treatment. She is also a multiply published and multiply honored individual who has committed her life to the intersection of management and public health, having earned both an MBA and MPH from Yale after five years in marketing after graduating from Princeton with her, with her bachelor's degree. So first, welcome to the podcast, Hill. You and I have known each other for several years right now. You arrived at Yale bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in August of 2018. Am I getting that the start to the story right? That is absolutely right, Howie. And first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm psyched to be here. And, and right after arriving here, you're taking accounting, you're doing orientation activities, you're, you're starting the core at the Yale School of Management. It's a very exciting time. What happens next? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I think when I first started business school in fall of 2018, I thought that accounting was going to be the scariest thing that I would face. And that ended up not being the case. About two weeks of orientation and four weeks of class into my MBA, I found a lump. And I found a lump that would ultimately be diagnosed as breast cancer. And, and you're a very young woman even now, and five years ago, younger still. This is very unusual. What did you do next? So you're absolutely right. I was 28 years old. I also had no family history. So as you can probably imagine, I marched into the Yale Health Center with absolutely no concept of a cancer diagnosis. That was not what, what I thought was in the cards. And quite frankly, 
nor did the clinicians I was seeing in the earliest days. And I began to move through the diagnosis process. And I think at every step of the way, we were all shocked to ultimately be diagnosed with stage two breast cancer. And, and at that point, you have to make a decision about how you're going to manage it and what do you do about school. And I realize those two things are hugely divergent. And many people may think it's crude that I would even put them on the same plane, but you're still in the middle of life. Huge. And you haven't quite shifted your lens yet, right? So actually, at that moment, it was really top of mind for me. And I remember after receiving my diagnosis, leaving New Haven the next day, heading back to Boston, where I would be treated at Dana-Farber. And one of the first calls that I made was to the dean of the business school. I had no concept of what this was going to mean. So in my mind, I thought, maybe I'll back back and forth and I'll still do school. And as soon as I received my, my treatment protocol, which included about 24 infusions and six surgeries, I realized that that was not in the cards. So, so now let's fast forward. You go through all of that um, and, and successfully, although you had complications along the way, and it was a very, very hard road from what, what I've read online and talked to you about. When do you then pivot to returning to campus? So I made the decision to restart school a year later with the new class. So I was actually still navigating the final months of my treatment, um, but returned in fall of, of 2019. Fast forward to the end of business school, and now you're starting a company. And why don't you just give us a brief overview of, of what that company does and where, you're, where you are now, and I'll let Harlan finally get a word in edgewise. Absolutely. And thank you for setting this up. So I am the co-founder and CEO of a company called Vivercare. We are building a new comprehensive care model for cancer survivorship care. And it is really designed to answer the question, what happens when you survive a critical illness? And how do we think about the long-term implications? And how do we really quarterback for patients more effectively so that they can lead happier, healthier lives after illnesses like cancer? Well, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I, I've known about you and how he's talked about you and you and I have spoken before. But, yeah. uh, it's just extraordinary to hear the path you're on. There's so many things I want to ask you about. I want to ask you about this issue about the survivorship gap and, you know, what people really know and how they're doing it. But I wanted to start with a piece that you wrote because I think folks might be interested in hearing it. Uh, because you're hearing breast cancer and, and there's lots of publicity around breast cancer. But you wrote a piece that, that, that borrowed a term that others have used called pinkwashing, in which you said sort of there's this commercialization of breast cancer. And it doesn't really necessarily address what, what people need. And I wonder if you could just amplify on that a little bit. I thought it was a fascinating piece they published in Stat News. And uh, maybe you could tell us a little more about that. You know, it's, it's funny. I was diagnosed on September 25th of 2018. So it was about five days before the start of October, which is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And I don't think I ever quite realized until I was in active breast cancer treatment, just how pink the world turns during that month. And the truth is, and you know, we could spend a whole episode talking about this. I mean, there is a fascinating history here of the branding of a disease. And in certain ways, the development of the pink ribbon, the movement towards thinking pink and raising awareness about breast cancer, don't get me wrong, we've made incredible strides and incredible amounts of capital have been forwarded towards really thinking about cracking the breast cancer challenge. But the truth is, it, it comes with challenges. And I would always urge anyone as they approach the month of October to really think about where these dollars are going, particularly when they're labeled with a pink ribbon. We often see 
that if there are campaigns being done or brand awareness campaigns, often those dollars are not actually landing in the hands of research organizations or patients that could really, really benefit from the support. So it's a very interesting double-edged sword. Hmm. And I mean, what, what do you think is the best example of that? I mean, you know, we watch football games, people have pink, people are in pink socks. I mean, it's like this whole thing. And as a as someone go, who's gone through it and is going through it and as a survivor, I mean, what, what what's the thing that kind of tickled you to write that piece in the first place? And what most offends you about it? You know, I will tell you, having sat in the chemo chair and the surgery table in the OR, breast cancer is not pink and pretty. Mm. And I think that there has been this push you know, brands are things that need to be enticing and appealing and even somewhat delightful. And when you see the world turn pink, you know, in some cases, it's wonderful to feel like there's momentum, but also as a patient facing the real realities of an extremely ugly disease, I think it can actually, in many cases, backfire and make our community feel a little bit more isolated, a little bit more called out kind of facing the realities of, of the hardship. And so you know, obviously where there are campaigns that are directing funds specifically towards areas like metastatic breast cancer research, triple negative disparity, awesome. We love to see it. Um, but we've got to start really putting our money where our mouth is when we think about breast cancer awareness. Mm, that's a good point. So, you know, I have a family member who's a 40 year survivor of cancer. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. it is striking to me how much of a gap in care exists for people who years and years, decades out from surviving, really surviving, cured of cancer, they have special needs challenges that are not really met by almost anybody in the healthcare system. There are survivorship clinics at specialized medical centers, including Yale, including uh, cancer hospitals. But can you tell us about maybe even some personal anecdotes, not necessarily about you, but of, of other people you've talked to through your company about what are the gaps in care what are the needs of this community? So it's fascinating. The reason that this company even came to be was that I was noticing this pattern in the incoming that I was getting from fellow cancer survivors. And they were echoing exactly what I experienced, which was that they were literally or figuratively ringing the bell. They were exiting active cancer treatment. And they were immediately grappling with what we call the short and late effects of cancer treatment. And these, we can talk in more depth about this, but these are the physical and mental side effects that stem from cancer treatment. And in all cases, these folks were reporting that they kind of felt thrown out to the wolves. Like they really no longer had a place at the cancer center, but they also couldn't find a clinician who really felt empowered to manage their care. And I'll say, I just became obsessed with this as a problem. Like really trying to understand what at a systems level is going on that all of these people are feeling this way and started to chat with the experts in this area and discovered what I think is a fascinating seismic shift in cancer care today. And this is going to echo a lot of what we think about in various areas of healthcare related to supply and demand, workforce challenges, et cetera. We basically have three parallel trends at play. The first is on the demand side which is that we have an exploding population of cancer survivors. It's a population that's going to double between 2008 and 2030. And this is like the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? It's more cancer, it's more cancer diagnosed younger, and it is the miraculous improvement of therapeutics that is keeping folks living with and beyond this illness. So that's the demand side. What that's doing 
is it's putting unprecedented pressure on our oncology ecosystem in real time. Many folks don't realize this, but we are seeing the demand for oncology services right now outstrip the growth in the number of oncologists. So in the old school model, it used to be that an oncologist might kind of hang on to their few survivors and help give them their shots, sort of serve as their PCP over time. That model is no longer tenable because of the workforce constraints. And so we get pushed out of the active cancer care ecosystem. And the question is, where do we land? Now, in an ideal world, we land in primary care. But that's trend three, which is that in addition to the primary care crisis, we're actually seeing, in some cases, 75% of PCPs reporting that they don't feel comfortable managing a cancer survivor because they weren't trained in the guidelines. So that's the survivorship gap. That's what we're seeing at a systems level. And as I mentioned, because this is a high-risk population dealing with a slew of cancer-related toxicities, we see greater health challenges in this population, as well as overutilization of hospitalizations, ER visits, urgent care visits, outpatient visits, et cetera. So that's really where the care model innovation is required. It's a problem that's happening in, in real time. And so this reminds me, by the way, in my own field, you know, of children being cared for with specialists in congenital heart disease. And then, you know, becoming adults and then where do they land? They, they land with adult cardiologists who treat adults who may not be as familiar with, with this. They, they miss especially so that it's kind of like, yeah, you're within this ecosystem that knows exactly what you need and can help support you. And then you're then you're left kind of with people who are well-intentioned and want to do well, but but aren't in just the same position. So so what is Vivercare going to do about this? I mean, how how do you see this and how do you how do you get traction on a business model? where people are willing to actually integrate it into the system so that it can help? It's a great question. So what we've done in our earliest days here, and I do want to give a shout out, I have a co-founder, his name is Dr. Dustin Grishkin. And when we met, he was actually a clinician out of University of Pennsylvania building a cancer rehabilitation model. And the two of us teamed up to really build what is a virtual first transitional care model that's purpose-built for cancer survivorship. And so we find transitional care very interesting. It's something that we've seen leveraged effectively in other areas of the healthcare system. We have not really thought about it in cancer, but what we see in our population is that it's really that moment when folks transition out of acute care and fall off that we see the challenges arise. And so you know, what we're doing is we are really trying to become the quarterback in that acute phase of survivorship. So as someone exits active treatment, we capture them, we wrap them in a virtual first care team of what we believe to be the right survivorship workforce. This is a survivorship nurse practitioner, survivorship trained therapist, and a peer guide. And we really guide them through a transitional care intervention that is designed to drive specific survivorship outcomes related to mental health and symptom burden, and also to more effectively provide that off-ramp that you were just talking about. Can you tell us specifically how much do you use technology? Because you're talking about a virtual system. How much are you using technology versus actually integrating existing guidelines into care that can be used on the ground? Absolutely. And so this is where I'll, I'll give one disclaimer up front, which is that I have absolutely zero interest in creating a separate lane of healthcare here, right? And what we know is that cancer patients have many different players in the ecosystem. We want to maintain that tight connection with the oncologist. You know, the reason for a virtual first approach is multifaceted here. The first, access, right? We know that 85% of survivors are seen in community cancer centers. There is often extremely little access to survivorship care, and we can help to bridge that gap. 
But the other reason for leveraging, particularly telemedicine, is one that is often a little bit unexpected. But survivors as a population, for us, the physical site of healthcare is the site of trauma. And so I'll say I love Dana-Farber more than any other organization on the planet. When I walk in, if I smell the Dana-Farber air, it is like a Pavlovian response. I am nauseous, right? It doesn't matter what I'm doing, what I'm going in for. And so the more that we can really meet survivors where they are, the better. And so that's really technology on the care delivery side. When we think about technology in terms of the workforce challenge that I mentioned, that really comes into play too. And I I kind of hinted at this previously, but... If you look at an executive summary of the NCCN and ASCO guidelines that you need to know to manage a survivor, particularly those dealing with short and late toxicities, it's too much for one person to do, particularly in a 20-minute appointment. And so one of the areas that we're really excited about is actually building survivorship pathways, leveraging data, really thinking about how we can augment the workforce to efficiently and, and appropriately care for this really complex population. I know that you're very deeply committed to this idea of eliminating disparities. And, and while you're trying yeah. to improve the care for individual patients, you're also thinking broadly about how do we increase access and make sure people can take advantage of best practices. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what, what's the strategy here? Because obviously it's uh, this could exacerbate disparities if it's a highly effective system that isn't ultimately available to populations that, that uh, are often excluded. Absolutely. And I think What we see in the survivorship landscape in particular is the very particular case of disparities that even how we started to mention, which is that we really only see some of these very specialized survivorship clinics pop up in talk academic medical centers. And so, you know, one of the areas we're really thinking about, we are actually now live with our care in Pennsylvania, for example, and a significant chunk of our patients live two, three hours away from a cancer center, right? And so really thinking about how can you leverage virtual care? How can you leverage access? How can you leverage peer support to really mitigate disparities? The other thing we want to think about, particularly in our model, is really reflecting the needs of of different populations. We are a virtual clinic. At the same time, we are laser focused on building locally, because we believe that particularly when it comes to employing survivorship therapists, thinking about our peer guides who are fellow survivors, we want to really be ingrained in the local community and the needs. And that really becomes part of the state-by-state go-to-market. You know, I know that in in in, in Vivercare, you're, you're looking at how to help people strengthen relationships, how to get back to work. You're also thinking about the financial toxicity, how you manage costs, how the system can manage costs. But, but to make it just to dig down into the individual experience. Can you can you tell us about, you know, without disclosing anything that would be related to confidentiality, sort of the experience of someone that you've encountered who's working with you guys and what it's meant for them to sort of have this, this opportunity to participate? Absolutely. So I'll give you an example, kind of de-identified. I'll, I'll change a few details here, but a little bit about what happens in the status quo, because I shared a little bit about some of these complications after treatment. We have worked with individuals who have an intersection of two types of post-cancer challenges. One is on the mental health side. Now, on the mental health side in cancer survivorship, we actually have a very unique metric. It's called FCR. There's a validated survey for it. It's fear of cancer recurrence. And what we see about fear of cancer recurrence is actually that it drives overutilization and engagement with the healthcare system, right? Because it's you go through 
a life-threatening illness, you don't receive the mental health support that you require, and all of a sudden, every ache, every pain, we're engaging in the healthcare system. I've done it myself, right, because of the fear. And so that's one very specific bucket that's very common in survivors. We're talking minimum 50% of folks experiencing moderate to severe FCR. The other challenges, though, and these are the ones that are less commonly spoken about, are actually physical. So I'll give one example of, of a patient who was suffering from severe chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy in her feet, and it was something she'd struggled with for a while. Um, what she found is that she kept falling, breaking her ankle, right, and ending up in an ER, right? And that's extremely, extremely difficult. It was a cycle that she felt she couldn't break. And so really what we are trying to do is say, let us be the bucket that captures folks that runs through these very targeted interventions around things like mental health. We have a proprietary therapy protocol that is really designed for this. And also provide the support at all hours of the day, right? When people are navigating some of these treatment-induced side effects, which we know often can land in an ER, which I'll tell you as a cancer survivor, starts a whole cycle of events that are both distressing and also financially toxic for the patient as well. And and when you go out like this, what kind of evidence are you having to generate about the, the, the effects of your intervention? So it really falls in two distinct buckets here, right? The first is really around, of course, our clinical outcomes. And how are we thinking about survivorship-specific metrics, things like, as I mentioned, FCR, fear of cancer recurrence, quality of life, symptom burden, et cetera. But the other area that we are super interested in is also on the impact and the outcomes on a systems level, right? So I, I hinted at this earlier, but we have this really unique phenomenon happening in cancer care around the overburdening of oncologists, right? So what we also want to prove out is that we can help to reduce that burden. It's something that's important to all different players across the healthcare ecosystem. That's one area. And of course, thinking about how we can reduce excess um, you know, utilization of areas like the ER. So as we get to the end, uh, I just want to give you a moment to just reflect on um, perhaps what you, what specific skills you got out of either the MBA or the MPH or both um, that helped inform you having this very successful startup. I mean, you've been able to pull off a lot. We don't have to go into the way I'm judging success, but uh, you've done a lot in a very short amount of time. Can you give us a sense of the types of things that, that your education informed here? It was huge. And I think one of the more interesting dynamics, I'd be curious how you feel about this, Howie, running running the program, but it is such a fascinating experience to go across the Yale campus from the business school to the public health school and back and to see the different types of conversations that are happening and the different ways that, that you use your brain. I think that has come to fruition every day for me in this company. Obviously, we are a business. There are all kinds of questions around how we think about go-to-market strategy and financing and incentives and all of those things. But the truth is, we only find our solutions. We only build what we build by really doing systems level analysis and actually building for a problem. And I think that my public health education was so critical in that. I will also just give a hat tip here and say that one of the extraordinary things about education as well is mentorship. And to have the ability to connect with folks like you, Howie, uh, and to really have leadership in, in that world has just been absolutely invaluable. 
You make teaching a joy. I mean, I think for, for all of us at Yale, what we're here for are the students. And uh, you are a joy to have. And we're very fortunate to have you. You are amazing, Hill. And it is true. Howie's one of a kind. And there are so many people that yeah. had such a positive influence on. It's a it's an honor to be on the podcast with another week. Thank you. All right. Hey, really great interview. Gosh, she's just such a spark of energy. So many ideas. I'm so hoping that, uh, you know, the work that she does ends up helping people. But I, I'm really excited to get to this part of the program. It's a year past Dobbs. It, lots of people still talking about issues around abortion, policy, healthcare, access. Tell us what's on your mind. Yeah, so we're a year out. Dobbs is the Supreme Court ruling uh, overturning Roe v. Wade, declaring there is no federal right to an abortion. And in the last year, many states have codified Roe or strengthened the protections to the right to abortion. But many others are in the process of restricting the right to abortion, including, as we've previously discussed, trying to undo the approval of mifepristone, the medical abortion treatment that's used in over half of all abortions right now. Um, The Kaiser Family Foundation released a survey of 569 OBGYNs, obstetricians and gynecologists across the country, with findings that suggest that the Supreme Court ruling has had far-reaching effects more than one might ordinarily assume. So here's some quick highlights from that. Over one-third of OBGYNs nationally and half practicing in states where abortion is banned or where there are gestational limits say that their ability to practice within the standard of care has become worse. 42% of OBGYNs report that they are very or somewhat concerned about their own legal risk when making decisions about patient care and the necessity of abortion. And this rises to roughly 60% for those who are practicing in states with gestational limits or abortion bans. 30% of OBGYNs practicing in states where abortion is now banned do not even offer their patients referrals to another clinician or any information about abortion. And most OBGYNs say the ruling has worsened their ability to manage pregnancy-related emergencies. So the Supreme Court term ends this week, and we don't expect major rulings from the court on these issues, but we do expect the court to take up several abortion-related cases in the coming year. And we're living in a very precarious time where some states are showing an increased predilection for stepping between patients and physicians and dictating how care can or cannot be provided. Repercussions occur for patients, their families, but also for the physicians who care for them and feel threatened by the onslaught of these efforts. Our listeners may recall, for instance, the Indiana physician who was reprimanded for talking about abortion with the press after her 10-year-old patient had an abortion. There is a role for states in overseeing the public's health, but usually it's dictated by science and evidence and not by political positioning. The intrusion of government into the private health affairs of patients without a public health concern should really trouble everybody. You know, this remains political, you know, hot potato, uh, you know, with such strong feelings on all sides. I'm really going to be interested to see what the impact is on health outcomes, too. Yeah. uh, as you suggest, people feel ill-prepared to deal with emergencies now. And, and there's a real fear in the community among healthcare professionals and, and among patients. And, and the trainees who have to get trained. Yeah. it's it, it, You just wish that we could all come together with a common understanding, but people just see the world so differently. Yep. Yeah. Thanks for doing that, Allie. Such an important topic. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. 
So how do we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can still find us on Twitter. I'm still at, at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Y-L. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu slash EMBA. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management and the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers, Ines Gil and Sophia Stump, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They are absolutely amazing, Howie. Amazing. Week in, week out. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.